step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. There we go. Okay. <clears throat> Sunday, July 31st. We're going to start talking about The Fall of Man. We probably won't get through it. It's really been awesome to go back and look at it. Um really kind of take it apart and look at it. It's the one moment in history that all men wish we could take back. You know? Um, none of the other things we talked about, we wouldn't even be wasting our time on it now had Adam and Eve done better, a better job. But um, we are, so we just need to look at it and just kind of understand the story a little better. We read it, you know, and it's like yada, yada, yada. And, and that's okay. But sometimes I think you just need to have deeper understanding of the story. So um, we're going to look at it from um, from the point of view of where Adam and Eve started. Look at verse 25 in chapter 2. This is the last verse. And then I'm going to read you um, what a lot of the commentators have to say. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Okay? Um, in the Targum, which, you know, are the writings of uh, scholars from, shoot, almost 2,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago, I mean, from the early church, from the time of early church, <clears throat> the first 500 years after Jesus was born, um, the men who who were writing about commentary on the Old Testament were um, their writings were not accepted uh, as such. They were taught verbally, but it wasn't written down anywhere and kept. But 500 years after the death of Jesus, um, the Targum was became a book, a full book, and they took all the teachings of these men and wrote them, wrote them down. And what I find so interesting is, is they're so very accurate for today. You know, it, it's interesting that the, the Targum is the writings and the interpretations of rabbis, okay? And um, it started at 500 B.C. being recorded. They were doing it long before that, but they weren't recording it until about 500 B.C. A.D., I'm sorry, 500 A.D., And the ones that we look at the most are, are Rabbi Jonathan and uh, Rabbi Onkelos, which you don't have to really know who they are, but those are the ones that we're looking at the most. There are several who wrote that um, wrote in the style of Jonathan, but they're not sure they belong to Jonathan, so the, the Hebrew people use pseudo-Jonathan. It, it means that it's either Jonathan or somebody that writes in his style. So they're not sure. But um, for the most part, I've even tried to stay away from the pseudo-Jonathan. I've just tried to give you Rabbi Jonathan and Ankylos, those two mostly. But um, there are others that are really powerful too. Um, if you ever want to look them up, just 
just out of interest, you can look at Chabad, C-H-A-B-A-D dot com. And you can find things there, Chabad.com. And, um, you know, just kind of look through stuff. I think that's it. If it's not, forgive me, I'll, I'll look it up for next week. But I think that's it. Um, the Targum said they knew not what shame was. Which is a pretty good way to look at it. They didn't know, and the word know, literally, yada, meaning have experiential understanding of shame. They didn't have that. They didn't have an understanding of it at all. And so they were naked. They were free, and, and it was not a problem. Um, John Gill said it like this, having nothing in them or on them that caused them shame. Nothing shameful, defective, scandalous, or blameworthy. No sin in their nature and no guilt in their conscience or wickedness in their hands. There was no consciousness of sin. They had no consciousness of sin. I would love to live like that, you know? Because they had not eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So they were, in, in, an, in essence, like the light bringer, Satan, or Lucifer, the carrier of light, when he was first created. Go to Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel knows exactly what he's doing. He's causing the fall of men just like it happened to himself. But when he was created, he was in perfection himself. Just like, just like man was. So, so was there sin in the world? No. You just didn't know about it? No. It wasn't sin, but the thing that got them was pride of life. Wanting more. Wanting to make themselves better. Wanting... Same as Lucifer. Exactly. It's that very thing. Now, just the wanting, now coveting, that's, that is a sin. But sin's in the world. But at that point, no. Um, but it was pride that was found in him. Pride was found in all of them. Mm. Um, and just like John says and we're going to look at it after a while all that's in the world lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes and pride of life that's what's in the world and that, that is the source of every sin that's ever committed period and that is exactly Satan's modus operandi every time he goes after somebody it is lust of the eyes lust of the flesh and pride of life he gets you every time. Rationalization. Alright, look at verse Ezekiel 28. Look at verse 13. Now when he's speaking here to Lucifer, he is speaking uh, of the Garden of Eden, not the one in the earth, but God's garden. Everything in the earth is a type and a shadow of God's heaven. Okay? of where God is, of, of everything that God is and has. Um, so our Garden of Eden um, was a type or a shadow of what is in heaven. Verse 13, You have been in Eden, the Garden of God. Every precious stone was in your covering. The sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of your tabrets. 
and of your pipes was prepared in you in the day that you were created. You are the anointed cherub that covers, and I have set you so. You are upon the holy mountain of God. You have walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. For you were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created until iniquity was found in you. And the iniquity was pride. Look at verse 17. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You have corrupted your wisdom by reason of your brightness. So men were perfect in their ways until pride was found in them. Okay? And they wanted more. Whatever they had was good, but they always want more. Everybody wants more. It's just the way it is. Pride of life. And Satan knows that because that's exactly what got him. So he goes after his enemy in the same way that um, he fell himself. When you have a perfect creation like man and you add to that the ability to think and reason and then you give him the gift of free choice just like he gave the angels. Now the angels had the freedom to choose to follow or not. The difference was theirs was without repentance. Whatever they chose, that was their eternal damnation or their eternal blessing. They did not have a Savior. We have a Savior. That's the difference in our uh, way of choosing. Um, but everybody had the right to choose. Okay. And the, because pride of life rose up in them, rebellion came. Rebellion follows pride of life. Um, one interesting little comment, and I've read this to you before, but um, Rabbi Jonathan says, both of them were wise, Adam and his wife, but they were not faithful or truthful in their glory. And you have to think about that a minute. They were very wise, but they were not faithful or truthful in their glory. Adam was certainly not faithful. Eve was not even truthful in her glory. She took what God said and even changed it. Um, so even though they were wise and they were perfect in God's sight, the idea that they have the freedom to choose, that they, they are autonomous creatures, um, opens the door for pride. And pride is the fall for everybody. That's, that's really it. It's always pride. I can do this better than you can, Lord. Sit right over there. I got it. And you know you're getting into trouble right then. And, um, you know, when you're trying to rationalize things, I mean, I, I know that we've talked about this. I sent the, the, the emails out to you. Did you get the one yesterday that I sent yeah. from the Confessing Movement with the three different kinds of believers? The ones that really trouble me are the ones in the middle. The ones that ride the fence. They're not sure how they feel about it. You know, want to be good Christians, but, mm, you know, that's where we're going to get into trouble. Um, you have to decide where you are in those things, you know. You have to make a decision, and um, people, all people have the right to choose. And while something seems right, it's all rationalization. And when you talk to people who are on the other side of the fence, they have rationalized away Scripture. They have rationalized the wisdom of God. Well, he didn't really mean that. I mean, you know, what he really meant was this. 
you know and love is this that means you know you just accept everything and everybody but that's not love I mean my question I've, I've had this discussion but my question the big question is how much do you love somebody do you love them enough to make them feel alright in their sin or do you love them enough like Jesus to take them to a better place if you love them enough like Jesus to take them to a better place then you're not going to be in the middle you know you can't be in the middle so you have to decide where you are in that. And that love thing, is uh, that's the tripper-upper for everybody. Okay, back to the fall of men. Um, literally on that day, all hell broke loose. Literally. In the garden. The garden that was perfection and life and blessing. So that now death and the curse prevail. And all things made of dirt. Every bit of the creation of God that is formed from the dirt has the curse on it. And we'll, I'm going to show it to you in Scripture in a few minutes. But um, Adam and Eve had been living their lives in fellowship with Elohim, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There was a pure innocence. Every day they were together, you know, face to face, um, knowing only life and blessing. And that that is so important. They only knew life and blessing. They only knew good because God is good. That's all they knew. They were made in the image of God. They functioned the way He functioned. Um, they were literally the highest order of being in creation. Psalm 8 says, You are created a little lower than Elohim. They were the highest order of God's creation. And they were given dominion over, and this is interesting, they were given dominion over everything that has the ability to move independently upon the earth. They were not given um, authority and dominion over plant life. And that shocked me. I don't know about you, but it shocked me. When I read that, when I first read some writings on that, I'm going, oh, wait just a minute. So go back to Genesis 1.27. God clearly defines their authority. Genesis 1.27. I'm sorry, 126. But we're going to keep reading. We're going to go all the way through 128, 126 through 128. And God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowls of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Okay, anything that has independent movement, and uh, Hebrew scholars tell you this, anything with independent movement has nefesh, has a soul. They can choose to move or not to move. They can choose where to go or not to go. Those are the living things that God gave man authority over. Everything that moves on the earth. Plant life does not have nefesh. Plant life does not move independently. Okay? Alright, keep reading. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And subdue it and have dominion over 
the fish of the sea, the fowls of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. That's the second time he gives that outline. Everything that moves upon the earth. But he didn't give him authority over the plant life. Which was interesting to me. The plant life was God's. And it still is his really. You and I do the work of the farmer. We till the ground. Um, the word till when it says there was no man to till um, the ground. The word till there is the word that literally is abad. Which literally means the work of a farmer. So everything that a farmer does is the work that Adam was given to do. He wasn't meant to sit idly by. But it would have been a blessing. Everything he put his hands to would have been blessed and multiplied. Okay? Because of the perfection that was there. It wouldn't have been hard work that would cause the sweat of his brow. But the work that he did would have always been prospered. Okay? But man was the sower... And God brought the increase. God's the one that determined the increase. And men would reap. But, but God is the one that put life in the seed. He's the one that brought the life out of the ground when the seed was planted. Men did not do that, nor did they have any control over that. Um, and then God, having made the vegetation to spring forth, once the vegetation came forth, then he put Adam in the garden. And then he brought all the animals as he made them to Adam to name him. Everything Adam named, he had authority over. To name something is to take authority over it in Scripture. Okay? That's why we always say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Because it's in that name that we have authority over everything. Okay? At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. Okay. So man did not have control over the plant life, but it was a blessing that God gave men for food. It was an important blessing. So God put Adam in the garden and he gave him instructions about all the plants that were there that were good to eat. Some were made specifically for the animals that he had made. But he said the trees, the fruit of the trees, you know, all of that, that's yours, Adam. Everything there. There's one tree that does not belong to you, and that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's in the middle of the garden with the tree of, of life, okay? And you are not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's my tree. And you are not to eat of that one. Okay? But man was always given a choice. Man was always given choice. Freedom to choose. Okay? And um, so uh, of all the things in that garden that Adam could have had, the one and only thing that he was not to eat of was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, let's just read a little bit. Go to Genesis 2 verse 9. Or verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also is in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
Now skip over to verse um, 15. And the Lord took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and keep it. And the Lord commanded of the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it. For in the day that you eat thereof you shall surely die. And the word surely die there is the same word repeated twice, which is for emphasis. Mooth, mooth. Utter destruction is what that word means. Mooth, mooth. You will surely die. Destroy suddenly. And Adam was suddenly destroyed, although he didn't recognize it at the time. Well, he did recognize it at the time. But you are suddenly destroyed if you do that. Okay. So that was the order. Don't eat of that fruit. So Adam's job was to tell Eve after she came along, don't eat of that fruit. Otherwise, you will surely die. Mooth, mooth. Okay, man knew, he knew good. But what he didn't know was the knowledge of good and evil. He didn't know evil. And the word know that God uses there is the word yada, which is literally to know experientially. Um, to understand by causative instruction or to discover knowledge gained by personal experience. So God says, if you eat of this tree, you will come to know by personal experience. You will come to discover because you eat of this tree, you're going to come to discover what evil is. Alright, let me read you two commentaries here. It's just interesting to hear what other people have to say. This is Rabbi Jonathan. But of the tree whose fruit they who eat become wise to know good and evil. You shall not eat. For in the day you eat you will be guilty of death. And that's really an important way to look at it. Because there is a cost for sin. There's a price to be paid for sin. The cost of sin is death. That's that's just it. You want to sin, you pay for it with death. That's the cost. Um, a lot of times we get into these discussions about um, you know whether or not I'm uh, for the death penalty or not, and it doesn't really deter people from committing crime. It's never meant to be a deterrent. It was never meant to be a deterrent. But it is that if you take another man's life, the price of that the cost of that that one act is your own life. That's the price. You did it, so now you pay the price for it, the cost of it. It has nothing to do with deterrence or psychological, you know, putting fear in people's heart. It is This is the price. And we've lost that. We've lost the understanding of that. The price for what you did. We've told you not to do that, but the price of doing it is this. So you have to pay that price. So God says, in the earth, the price of eating of that tree is that you're going to come to know death. You you are guilty of rebellion, really, is what the guilt was. 
But then you're going to have to pay the price, and the price is death. That's the cost of it. The wages of sin, the cost of sin, what you pay for it, is death. Muth. Muth, muth. Okay? John Gill says it like this. Eating the fruit of it, he would become experientially sensible to the difference between good and evil, between obedience and disobedience to the will of God. He found by sad experience what good he had lost or might have enjoyed and what evil he had brought on himself and his posterity that he might have avoided. Um, so what he was going to come to know is evil. The word for evil is ra'ah. R-A-A-H. Ra'ah in the Hebrew. And this is what it is. Adversity, affliction, calamity, distress, grief, great grief, harm and hurt, sorrow, trouble, wretchedness, wickedness. So there it is. That's what evil is, the knowledge of evil. This is what he's going to come to know experientially. Adversity, affliction, calamity, distress, Exceeding great grief, harm, hurt, sorrow, trouble. All that list. You know, and when you think of it, that is the full curse. It is the absence of the blessing. The blessing covers all of that. Defense, deliverance, protection, victory, prosperity, health. Everything said at one, nothing missing, nothing broken. That is the blessing. And the absence of the blessing is that evil, adversity, affliction, calamity, distress, exceeding great grief. Oh my. Okay, so now let's go to chapter 3. And let's just read one verse here. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he he said to the woman, Yea, has God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Okay. Serpent. When you look at serpent, the word for the noun is nakash, you know, a serpent. But but in in the Hebrew, if you want to know what it means, you have to go look at the verb. Okay, you have to go back to the main root, the verb, action verb, because all all verbs are action in the Greek. I mean in the Hebrew. So you so in order to understand the meaning of the noun, you have to understand the meaning of the root verb, which is nakash, the same word. But this is what it means, a prognosticate, to whisper a spell, to define divine or enchant. And when you read in the lexicon, there's a phrase that's really interesting. They call him a luminous shining enchanter. A luminous shining enchanter. Okay. And when you start to read about this serpent, 
there are a few descriptions. When you, when you read down through the lexicon, it just gives you all kinds of information. They even mention animals like the whale or the hippopotamus. But because of the curse, you realize that it can't be one of those. However, crocodile is one that you need to look at. Um, it might not have had to be a total snake, okay? Like we think snake. Um, but crocodile was another animal that is mentioned as a serpent in Isaiah when it says the, the serpent lies on the bottom of the waters but rises to bite men. And uh, it's the picture of a crocodile. Okay? But crocodiles crawl on their belly and eat of the dust. Crocodiles, alligators. There are animals that fit that beside the snake. They also hiss. Crocodiles hiss. You know, they have a hissing sound. Nefesh. You know, nahash. That's where it comes from, that hissing sound. But, um... If you look in Numbers 21, we're going to do Numbers 21 and then we're going to 2 Corinthians 11. So on the way, Numbers 21, just a, an interesting picture here. So you have to understand this snake was bright, shining, luminous, beautiful. And probably walked upright. We'll talk a little more about that in a little while. But look at uh, Numbers 21. When God sent the serpents <clears throat> just to talk about this luminous, shining enchanter. And an enchanter just by its nature is evil. You know. They're, the acting is God. But if you look at this, you can see this fiery serpent. Verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses, Make you a fiery serpent. And set it on a pole, and it will come to pass. Everyone that is bitten when he looks upon it shall live. Um, if you back up to verse 6, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, of, and much people of Israel died. Not just a serpent, not just snakes, not rattlesnakes or anything like that, but fiery serpents, luminous creatures to bite the people. <clears throat> now go to 2 Corinthians 11. Numbers, my, my, my Bible uses the word venomous. Venomous? Doesn't have fiery. Doesn't have fiery. Fiery is, is in the Hebrew. It is in the Hebrew fiery and it's luminous lit up like you know brilliant shining um, 2 Corinthians 11 14 is this where I want to be yes You have to remember Satan's original nature. He was the light bringer. He was the light bringer. So whether or not this serpent was originally luminous and shiny, we don't know. But when he encountered Eve, he was brilliant and shining. Look at verse 14. And no marvel, 
For Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore it's no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. Satan is never going to appear to people as a horrible looking, the horrible looking monster that he is. He's always going to appear as that bright, luminous light bringer. He always makes things look good. Now everybody agrees, everybody, that I read, Satan was the enchanter. But there was a little bit of a question about whether or not Satan took the form of a snake or whether he inhabited the serpent that was already there. Most people agree that he inhabited a snake or, or whatever this creature was that was already there because of the curse that was spoken over this creature. Okay. Um, in the Targum, they translate um, what for you and I in Genesis 3 is the serpent was more subtle than any beast. In the Targum, the, the authors translate it, the serpent was made more subtle than any beast. Which would make it understandable then that Satan, by entering that beast, caused him to become more subtle. You know, the serpent was made more subtle. Gill says it like this. That is, the serpent wasn't naturally subtle. But through Satan being in it, using it in a very subtle manner to answer his purposes and gain his point, for though a real serpent and not the mere form or appearance of one is clear um, because in this account the curse is placed on it. So I kind of like the translation of the Targum that the serpent was made more subtle than all the other creatures. But these are things we can assume about him. Number one, we can assume that the creature was pleasant to look at. Because one of the meanings is a shiny, luminous enchanter. So you can understand that he was very pleasant to look upon. Eve wouldn't have had any problem hanging out with him. Then he couldn't have been a snake. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> he must have walked upright because God spoke the curse dooming him to crawl on his belly. Mm. So if you look at verse 14 in chapter 3, And the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon your belly shall you go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So this creature must have walked upright at the time because the curse is you crawl on your belly and eat dust. Because we seem to be midpoint in a conversation here, this is really interesting. There is a, when you read this, and I'm going to show you the word, when, yay, God has said, I'm going to show you the yay in a minute. But it seems that we walk in right there in verse 1, walk right into the middle of an ongoing conversation. Um, Eve's not at all startled by this serpent speaking. What animals speak? You know, and she's not startled at all about this animal speaking to her. So the assumption is that she's either spoken with him before or she's over the shock because they're in mid-conversation. Mm. Um, 
And I'll show you in a minute why it's mid-conversation, all right? But it seems probable that she had encountered this being before. And the next thing is, because only man was blessed with the ability to speak, Satan had to inhabit that serpent. So that we know. You can say he, he was beautiful. He walked upright at the time. Satan inhabited him because Satan gave him a ability to speak. Eve must have seen him before or known him before because she wasn't shocked at an animal speaking to her. And men were the only ones that were made speaking spirits. So she had to, you know, there's no shock there. But the discourse is interesting because it starts with a word, um, yay, okay? Um, let's see if I can find the definition here. Yay. Look at, uh, look at it. It starts... Uh, in verse 3 again. And he said to the woman, Yay! Has God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Okay, the word yay there is the word in Hebrew that means although, moreover, furthermore, or yet. So you sound like you're right in the middle of a conversation. Moreover, did God say that you couldn't eat of every tree of the garden? Or... Um, furthermore, did God say you can't eat of every tree of the garden? So they must have an ongoing conversation. We just walk in in the middle of it here. Because yay indicates that there was a prior thought. Something had happened prior to it for you to go moreover or furthermore or even yet. So, so you're in mid-conversation here. Eve has already probably told him about what's in the garden. They probably had the conversations... And now the two of them are in the middle of the garden and Adam's with her. We find that out. Adam's with her but Eve is the one talking to the serpent. And they're standing right by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now why is Eve standing next to that tree? Of all the places she could be in the garden, why is she at that tree? You know? Did the serpent say, let's take a walk? And they just end up there? How did she end up by that tree? The one thou shalt not in the whole garden. But there she was. So Satan doesn't um, throw up a, a big um, disagreement. He just puts doubt in her mind. So did God say you can't eat any of the trees of the garden? And Eve's response then was no. Not at all. We can eat from some of the trees of the garden, from most of the trees of the garden, um, but about the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, don't eat from it. Here's the lie. Don't even touch it or you'll die. Now, all Satan is trying to do is get her to doubt. Why would God withhold anything from us? Is you know, is it that he doesn't want us to be good enough? He doesn't want us to be as smart as he is? He doesn't want that? The sad thing is, is they were made in his image and in his likeness. Already they were like God. But um, the doubt was there. Okay? The doubt was there. So Satan begins to rationalize. 
He uses exactly what's in um, 1 Corinthians 10.4. Go to 1 Corinthians 10.4 because we need to look at this. This is the source of sin. I'm telling you. It's it's human rationalization. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 10.4. I use this when I pray a lot. 10, 3, and 4. Okay, look at verse 3. For we walk not in the flesh. We don't war after the flesh. But the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Strongholds are wrong attitudes of the heart. Eve had a wrong attitude. She had a wrong understanding. No, we can't eat it. We can't even touch that tree or we'll die. So she's already off the map. So there are wrong understandings of the heart. Then it says, we cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Okay, those are rationalizations. Every imagination, every high thing that you and I raise up above the knowledge of God. Well, God won't mind if we do this. I mean, He's a loving God. He won't care if we if we act even though I know it says in the Word somewhere that we're not supposed to do that, God won't mind. He loves us. And besides, we're born again. You know, we, 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 we're not sinners. We, we're born again. So God won't care. Those are imaginations and rationalizations. When you get to teenagers, it's, well, so-and-so's doing it. And their mom and dad say it's okay, so why can't I do it, Right? But there are all kinds of high things and imaginations that, that the enemy puts in your head. Your thought life is a dangerous place when you think about the enemy. That's what he does. So what did he do to Eve? He says, oh, Eve. Did he tell you you couldn't eat of that? Did he deny you a blessing in this garden? Why would God do something like that? You know? Do you really think you're going to die if you eat of that? God wouldn't put anything in this garden that would hurt you. You know? High things and imaginations. And then the other is bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ Jesus. Um, you know, that's what we can do. But she didn't. She listened to the high things and the imaginations that the snake told her about. Anything that would make you take you to a better place than you are now. That's what we rationalize. We're not going to do anything that's going to take us to a worse place. We're not stupid. But we rationalize that this will be okay and I'll be, you know, this will put me ahead of the game. Um, so what if I don't take Saturday off? I, I'm just going to stay in and work an extra five or ten hours here and then when I come in Monday, I'll just, I mean, it'll be great. I won't have to, you know, I won't have to strain so hard. It'll just be an easy day. We, we rationalize stuff like that all the time. All the time. I do things like now, I'm going, you know what? I'm going to cook dinner tonight and give Bill a rest. Bless his heart. I'm feeling good. My knees are good. I know better than to get up and really do too much. But if you do too much, you get into trouble. But it's a high thing or imagination. Well, God would be pleased if I do something else, my sweet husband. You know? And then I get myself into trouble. Because God's saying, be still. Which, that has been really hard for me. And, um... So even though it seems like a good thing, we can rationalize and imagination takes over. We imagine this is going to work out really good. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And we do it without the okay of God. 
Okay? Um, not meaning to do anything wrong. I don't think Eve meant to do anything wrong. But she forgot and lost her, lost her center that God had said, of all the trees, do not eat of this. Instead, the snake said, no, this is what's going to happen. Now go back to um, Genesis. He says, no, no. Here's the high things and rationalizations. Verse 4. And the serpent said to the woman, you won't surely die. And those guys are going to wipe you out for that. I mean, after all, you're the you know, you're, you're his creation. You have a great relationship with him. He isn't, isn't going to kill you. He didn't mean that. But God knows that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes will be opened and you will be as God's knowing good and evil. There it is, the high thing in the rationalization. Well, gee, God is good. God is awesome. God is beautiful. I want to be like God. Why not? And be wise like God. Why not? There it is, that imagination. So surely he wouldn't kill us. He, he's our friend. He walks in the garden with us every day. He fellowships with us. You know, surely he, he wouldn't mind if we were wise like he is. I can just hear the thoughts there. So what does she do? She puts her eyes on that tree. Now leave your finger here and go to 1 John. Way in the back. Everything told in the beginning is about the end. Same thing happens today, only on a much bigger scale. Well, you can't get much bigger than this one, but, but it's a big scale, even now. Um, well, let's see if I can find it here. Okay, 1 John 2. Verse 16. Or 15. Look at 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. That tree was in the world. Don't love that tree, Eve. Don't, don't look at that tree like you love it. Okay? Don't do that. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Okay? Um, and then a little bit further down, he goes on to talk about the spirit of Antichrist. He said the spirit of Antichrist is in the earth. So, what does the spirit of Antichrist use? He uses lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, right, and pride of life. So, look what she does. He begins to rationalize with her. Let me read what Gill says. <coughs> the doubt was surely, um, the doubt was, surely a God of such goodness wouldn't withhold anything that would make you wise. That's the way the serpent is trying to get her to look at it. Ankylo says it this way. Is it true? Surely it can't be true that the God of such goodness could ever deny you such a benefit or restrain you from such happiness. Um, he could be your friend that lays such an who could be your friend that lays such an injunction on you. <coughs> and isn't that what we're going through right now in this church? Well, surely God didn't mean that. He's a loving God. He wants people to be happy. And if that's what makes them happy, then we have to love them and let them be happy. Let them accept it. Let them go with it. You know, that's that's 
what Satan says. Oh, this loving God. He wouldn't do that to you. But he rationalizes it. Now look what she does. What did I tell you? Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. He's already got the pride of life. It's going to make you wise. But look what she does. Look at verse 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, look at that, lust of the eyes, she saw that the tree was good for food. And it was pleasant to the eyes. Okay, it was good for food, lust of the flesh. And it was pleasant to the eyes, lust of the eyes. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes. And look at this one. And a tree to be desired to make one wise, pride of life. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. And that was all it took. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also to her husband with her and he did eat. And there was the fall. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Now go to Matthew and then we're going to quit. Matthew chapter um, 4. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus has just been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has taken him into the wilderness and he has fasted for 40 days. And guess who shows up? The shining luminous enchanter. So start with verse um, 2. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights and afterwards he was hungered. So his flesh, his human flesh was causing him to be very hungry. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. Lust of the flesh. First thing, he said, command these stones to be bread. Lust of the flesh. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Look at verse 5. Then the devil took him up to the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you be the Son of God, cast yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning you in their hands, and they shall bear you up, lest at any time you should dash your foot against a stone. Pride of life. You prove to me you're the Son of God. You throw yourself down. The, the word says angels will bear you up, lest you can't dash your foot against a stone. Prove to me that you're the Son of God. That's pride of life. And look at the last one. Verse 8. Again the devil took him up to an exceeding high mountain and he showed him. He said, look there. Look out. This is what I want you to see. All the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. Lust of the eyes. And he said, all these I will give you if you would fall down and worship me. There's lust of the eyes. Satan used the very same tactics on Jesus that he used on Eve. And I don't believe for a minute that Adam didn't listen in on that conversation because he was with her. 
So Satan used all that is in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Jesus didn't sin though. Adam did. Adam is the first Adam. Jesus is the second Adam. Flip over to um, 2 Corinthians. Is it 1 Corinthians 14? Hold on. 2 Corinthians 14. Is that it? No. Nope, wait. I found it. 1 Corinthians, Corinthians 15. We're going to come back to this. Just going to read a little bit of this to show you that Adam, the first of creation, was made a sinless creature. Jesus, like Adam, with a flesh body, was also born without the sin of man in him. Okay, he did not have the sin of man in him. He is the second Adam. Um, look at verse 45. And so it is written, the first Adam was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit, this was not the first which is spiritual, but that which is natural. So Adam, the natural man, was first. Jesus, the spiritual man, was second. Afterwards, that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy, made of earth. The second man is the Lord of heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. As is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. For as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. So there were two Adams, two men born into the earth, two men made in the earth that were per perfect before God, blameless, sinless. The first Adam fell, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. The second Adam, when he was tempted, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life, he did not fall. He did not fall. He passed the test. Praise God. Okay. Um, okay, we'll stop there and then pick up next week. This. This. July 31st. I can't believe it's the end of July. Oh, it does. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.